When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. We've already raised enough to pay for 11 months worth of episodes of this show. We're going to keep the fundraising drive going until we've got a full year covered. Please give if you can afford to. Today... Nate welcomes Richard Aquila to talk about rock and roll during the Kennedy administration. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Richard Aquila, author of Rock and Roll in Kennedy's America, A Cultural History of the Early 1960s. Richard, welcome. Apologies for butchering your name. <laughs> That's okay. It's fine. <laughs> Pleasure to be with you. So I love this book. This is a period of time that when I was taught about rock and roll history was written off as the Dark Ages. Elvis joins the army. Jerry Lee's disgraced. Little Richard uh, finds Jesus. Buddy Holly dies in a plane crash. John Lennon says everything's bad until the Beatles came along and, and you know, <laughs> and, and there we go. But this is actually a great era of rock and roll. It's incredibly rich. And it's also a unique period in American cultural history after the election of John F. Kennedy and before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Tell us about this period and why you chose to write about it. Well, there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, first off, on a personal level, okay, as a baby boomer, I grew up with rock and roll music. I was there when the music was born in the 1950s. It offered a soundtrack to my high school years in the early 1960s, and I witnessed the changes, the important changes that occurred uh, once the British rock invasion hits in 1964. And all through it, the music was reflecting a certain mood, changing mood of the United States in those years. And I always intuitively suspected that. And then later on, uh, I went to graduate school and got a PhD in American history. And the more I read in terms of history, one of the new things that began emerging during the 1980s and 1990s was something called the new social history, where it, essentially it looked at history from the bottom up, the grassroots, rather than just top down looking at all of the major figures in American history. And what dawned on me as I was going through that PhD program was that rock and roll music fit that description perfectly. I mean, what you're talking about is a grassroots music, and it shows the importance of popular culture, that for many people, rock and roll was extremely important in their lives, myself included. And I, I set out to, to to try to prove that in terms of how the music reflects the times, because that's what we're really talking about. And for most historians during those years, they didn't want to deal with, with rock and roll music at all. I mean, their attitude was, that's not real history. It's not even real music in some cases is what they argued. And I was trying to show essentially how important their music was during those years. 
And I think you succeeded. There's a great story you tell in the introduction about a, a Libra and Stoller song, Only in America. And we discussed this on the show in the past. This was a song, you know, Only in America. And it was a hit for Jay and the Americans in a very much a flag-waving way. But that's not the original concept Libra and Stoller had. Who'd they write it for originally? Well, originally it was going to be with the Drifters, and the Drifters, a, 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 a black rhythm and blues group during that time period, uh, date back to the 1950s, and they, they underwent numerous changes as far as personnel, and Lieber and Stoller saw it as a perfect example for that group, and uh, their record label wanted nothing to do with that because essentially – one of the lyrics in the songs was uh, only in America could a poor boy grow up and become president. And the record company said, wait a second, we don't want to hear a black person singing that line. It's going to cause lots of problems in the South and elsewhere because of what was going on with civil rights in the 1950s and early 1960s. And so Lieber and Stoller were convinced it was a great song and they wanted to, to use a song. So they brought in Jay and the Americans, a white pop rock group to do that song. And in fact, all Lieber and Stoller did is they erased the vocals. They used the music track that they already laid down and they had Jay and the Americans singing it. And as uh, Lieber and Stoller later pointed out, once they made that change uh, and they said, even the name of the group, Jay and the Americans plugged right into the patriotism of the, of the late 1950s and early 1960s. And the song shot right up to the top of the charts coming at top 10 head. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating snapshot of the period, and I think it's well chosen. That says a lot about the politics of the period. I mean, on the one hand, black groups like the Drifters, and this is the Drifters 2.0 with Benny King and others that, that came along, and Lieber and Solar have been working with them since 1959 through a legendary run of singles. So these groups had much higher profile than similar African-American groups would have had just 10 and definitely 20 years earlier. You had a few groups like the, you know, the, the Mills brothers and then the ink spots. Um, and then, and then the whole bird group thing, the Ravens, the crows, the Orioles, uh, et cetera. And then you get this new wave of, of singers and, and it creates more space and there's more space for African-Americans to make their mark, but it's still not, a relaxed enough environment for a black group to be able to do a song like only in America that frankly just comes off sounding. There's a lot more levels of meaning to it when the drifters do it. Not that we got to hear it, but, but you can, you know, there's just a lot more politics involved when you have a, a, a group oh, of yeah. a marginalized oppressed, oppressed group praising uh, the nation that's oppressed them. And so, uh, you know, the J and the Americans was a, perfect early 60s solution let's get some white kids in there with some nice pearly and, and, teeth and go ahead and you know something nate uh one of the reasons why i started out with that song is because it it does something not not just the lyrics in terms of capturing what was going on during that time period but that backstory right. and the point i was trying to make there in terms of the introduction was sometimes the music is pretty straightforward in terms of what the message is and everything else. Other times, you got to dig a little deeper to see what's going on there. It's almost like uh, peeling an onion in different layers. And as you get down there and you realize what's going on with that song, there's far more going on there than meets the eye uh, in terms of that song. So, uh, yeah, you're right when you say that. I mean, uh, essentially, that's what this entire book is all about. That is trying to, regardless of what song we're talking about, uh, whether it's a song by the Drifters or whether it's a song by Elvis Presley, who's changing directions during that time period, or whether it's a song by Frankie Avalon or Fabian, those songs tell you something about the times. And, that, and as an historian, that, that's one of the things I'm interested in here, that I, if I was writing the book as a, as a music critic, I could talk about, you know, this is a good song, this is a bad song. But that was not my primary purpose here. That creeps in there, obviously, in terms of things that I write about and everything else. But by the same token, what I'm trying to show is that all forms of, the, of popular culture, including popular music during those years, tell you something about the listeners, tell you something about the times. And that's what this book tries to get at. Yeah, absolutely. Every song is a political statement. Every recording artist's 
uh, musical career as a political statement. And I, you know, we do a music history show here and we try to avoid the what's good and what's bad stuff as well. Although sometimes you just can't help it. I mean, some stuff is obviously uh, you know, just has more impact and, and more meaning to more people and, and other stuff. Sometimes there's just clunkers that, that, that are out there. But let's go ahead and hear a little bit of music. And this is Stupid Cupid by Connie Francis. When we come back, we'll talk about Neil Sedaka, Howard Greenfield, and the Brill Building. Stupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can fly. I'm in love and it's a crying shame. And I know that you're the one to blame. Stupid Cupid. Hey, hey, set me free. Stupid Cupid, stop picking on me. And that was Stupid Cupid by Connie Francis, written by uh, Neil Sedaka and Howard Greenfield. And that's probably not the ideal song, but it's a fun one, and I wanted to pick it. The, the, the two songs I want to talk about, though, and I'm assuming most people have either heard them or can go find them easily. But one thing I like about the way you did this book was you, you know, you, you're not doing a critical history, so you're free to look at things dispassionately, and you do a great sort of cross-section of what were the various players or the various movements in rock and roll in this period from 1960 to 1963. And you lead with a chapter or a section called New Directions that has four chapters. And I thought this was a really interesting way to carve carve up what you lead with and and what was new, what were the new directions in the early 60s. And you pick essentially neo-doo-wop, which is a term I hadn't heard before, but I think is perfect. What does neo-doo-wop mean? Who is doing it? And how is it different from original doo-wop? Well, it differs in a couple of ways. What happens is after 1960, there are going to be all sorts of changes cutting across different styles of rock music during that time period. Uh, a lot of it comes out of the Brill Building in terms of the types of songs and the instrumentation. I mean, using violins, using French horns sometimes, timpani. I mean, all sorts of things you wouldn't have heard back in the 1950s. And doo-wop uh, essentially refers to, it's a, sort of a second wave of doo-wop music that hits. Uh, the earlier doo-wop in the 1950s was far more R&B uh, oriented in terms of coming out of rhythm and blues music, whereas neo doo-wop was much more of a blend between those R&B influences during the 1950s, but also some of these new influences that begin to hit. Uh, and I think it's Again, trying to put this into context, you got to remember something, that the baby boom generation hits high school in 1960. That's the vanguard of the baby boomers. People born in 1946 are just hitting high school as Kennedy is elected president. That generation, that baby boom generation, and arguably is the second rock and roll generation. The first generation would have been those kids who came of age during the 1950s uh, and cheered on Elvis Presley and Presley Mania when it hits in 1956. And now, though, here's the second generation of rock and roll fans, and the music that they were listening to in some ways was quite different in terms of the sound. And neo doo is a good example of that. It's it's far more pop-oriented than some of the earlier doo-wop that you had in the 1950s. Not completely, because uh, a perfect example would be the Marcel's Blue Moon. I mean, that is straight out of R&B uh, in terms of the sounds, the doo-wop sounds that you find in that song. But still... What you're talking about is it, it's different. It's, you know, it sounds more modern to ears of the early 1960s than some of the more R&B influence do up earlier on. Yeah, and, and there's I, a whole slew of new groups as well. Yeah, and sorry to interrupt, but I think one of the things about Blue Moon is it's a Rogers and Hart classic song. And it's already been done um, by numerous rock and roll performers, including Elvis Presley by this point, and the chord structure becomes so common in doo-wop songs in this era that the Beatles just called that chord structure the doo-wop, um, you know, the doo-wop, uh, I can't remember now, 
what <laughs> I'm blanking on the on the what you call chord structure, but anyway, that's not relevant. But it was the doo wop changes. Okay. That's right, the changes. It was the doo wop changes, and it becomes this do massively dominant form. When the Beatles or other songwriters later on want to evoke the '50s, this is the chord sequence they're going to use to do that. And it's it was really surprising and fascinating to me to learn. Oh wow, that didn't become a big thing until the late '50s, way late in the '50s, and and this. You know, these groups tend to be more integrated, a lot of groups, um, and also a lot more Italian and outer borough, not integrated groups. A lot more white artists are doing doo-wop in this period, but it's definitely different. And you talk a little bit about the tokens and their classic, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, which has a long chain of origin. Um, can you run through that quickly? That was a, a fascinating story behind The Lion Sleeps Tonight, <clears throat> because lots of people today are familiar with that song because it appears in movies and everything else. And there's a second generation of that. And one of the people I interviewed for this book was Jay Siegel, who sang lead on the lion sleeps tonight. And he, he told a fascinating story in terms of how that song came about and how they even brought in, uh, an opera singer to sing a high part that was just one notch above his falsetto and it worked brilliantly in terms of the instrumentation and and the singing in that and what was very surprising uh with that song is that song actually originated with Solomon Linda, a Zulu, and uh, his group in Africa uh, much earlier on. The song, as far as most people were concerned, it, it sort of never makes it anywhere. I mean, it was sort of an early folk song that Solomon Linda was singing about a lion in the jungle. And that song is then eventually going to find its way into the hands of Pete Seeger. And Seeger just fell in love with the song and was trying to figure out what he was hearing in some in the original that was being done and sort of uh, changes it, the, the, the refrain, a whim away, a whim away that he, he sings throughout, uh, was sort of a, a variation on the Zulu word meaning lion. And it was absolutely a phenomenal song from that perspective. And Jay Siegel of the Tokens was listening to a Pete Seeger concert on the radio in the, the 50s, and that's where he first heard that song, and he thought to himself, oh, I could sing, I could sing that kind of falsetto, and that song basically then is transformed uh, into the tokens, the lion sleeps tonight, which had all sorts of different uh, interactions as far as uh, the style. And it mixes all sorts of stuff in there, including folk music from that perspective. And in some ways, when I was talking to Jay Siegel, uh, I found it interesting because one of the things I didn't know is Jay Siegel told me, he said, look, when we first came out, he said, sometimes we even had a banjo player with us because we did a lot of folk songs on our set. And his record label actually would book them onto college campuses and they would sing, you know, half the songs they would do would be folk songs. So from that perspective, it's almost an early glimpse of what comes to be known later on as folk rock, uh, blend together rock and roll beats and some rock and roll harmonies with folk style lyrics and it really I from 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 my perspective when I was talking to Jay Siegel it, I found it fascinating when you try to trace the origins of some of these songs because it's like different streams or currents of popular music that are running together and at that particular moment emerges this lion sleeps tonight yeah, I love that image, too. Several threads coming together to make this beautiful new knot, uh, which is the song The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And, you know, Jay Siegel's one of these guys who should have gotten a writer's credit. He added new verse structures, new verse melodies and new lyrics to it and uh, got jacked, frankly, on that. But I didn't realize how involved he had been in the production. And he, he appears multiple times in this book as uh, kind of an A&R guy, not just the leader of the tokens, but producing other songs as well. So that was informative and interesting to learn about. But let's hear our next song. This is Leaving Here by Eddie Holland. Eddie Holland, of course, is going to go on to be part of the Holland Dozier Holland songwriting team with his brother, Brian and Lamont Dozier, who are going to write and produce the hits that keep the Supremes at the top of the charts at the height of Beatlemania. This is Leaving Here by Eddie Holland. 
that was some early Motown that was Leaving Here by Eddie Hall. And this is a song that's going to go on to be covered by The Who and many other British artists. Pretty definitive early Motown track. And tell us, Motown obviously is one of the other uh, sections in this New Directions chapter. Tell us about Motown and how you connected it to the civil rights movement. Well, Motown emerges from Detroit. I mean, it really is sort of the sounds of Detroit that are going on there. And Barry Gordy had had some success as a songwriter writing some songs for Jackie Wilson earlier on. And it was a fascinating story that I had to compress in that chapter, basically, that shows the links between Barry Gordy's family growing up in a family atmosphere and he recreates that family atmosphere for Motown. And what you're talking about in the early 1960s is the rise of this black label, black artists, black producers, black songwriters, black ownership. And in effect, what's going on is when people are talking later on about black power, black economic power in the 1960s, there's no better example than Barry Gordy and Motown. And it was sort of a family atmosphere in terms of the what they the, developed there in, in Motown. And the songs the the artists i mean you you go through some of the artists during that time period uh and this is all what, what i'm writing about it in this book is the early 1960s when motown's just getting off the ground and this is pre uh supremes at that point they they were anything but supreme uh because they had issued several uh, releases but everyone was a flop uh it's not until later on that they begin having their mega hits and become a super group but what you're talking about during that time period are some phenomenal songs one of their first big hits was uh, uh money done by barrett strong and to this day, you listen to that song, and it's it's just a solid rocker in terms of the sound itself. And it's almost crass in terms of materialism that he wants money. You know, they say the best things in life are free, but you know, tell it to the birds and bees, I want money. That's what I want, seems Barrett Strong. I mean, and what you find are these songs during this time period with a wonderful studio band. And as I was getting into this, one of the things I realized is it is the same studio band playing behind all these different artists on the Motown label. And Martha Reeves of the Vandellas, um, when I interviewed her, she pointed out that that band uh, that they had, the studio band in Motown, she said they were brilliant musicians and most of them had a jazz background and they added that sound to what they were doing. She said, but they had an uncanny ability to tailor their music to whichever group they were backing up. And she said when they performed behind uh, the, the Vandellas, she said it sounds very different than when they're performing behind the Temptations or the Miracles or, or any other group during that time period. So, I mean, it was, it was truly something. And w one of the things that's extremely important, I think, uh, that uh, I try to get at in this book is when you link rock and roll during those years in terms of what's going on with civil rights, you really get a different perspective on the civil rights movement and how it's emerging in all different ways during those years, including in music. And during that time period, for example, what we're dealing with is if you take a look at the African-American population of the United States in the early 1960s, it was 11% of America's population. But in 1960, 30% of all top 40 hits were done by blacks. By 1963, it's 36% done by blacks, which seems to suggest to me that what's happening here is a couple of things, more opportunities for black singers, uh, more of a receptive audience in terms of whites who wanted to hear black sounds. And because you, you really have to, put it in context of the entire rise of the civil rights movement and the blossoming of the civil rights movement during that time period. And Barry Gordy Jr. in Motown, it's, it's not just 
putting the music out there when whites could listen to that music and appreciate the music, but also behind the scenes, what you're looking at is locally in Detroit, Motown played a very important role in terms of the local community, uh, trying to do various things, helping out groups. Uh, at one point, Barry Gordy and Motown actually are going to release an album of civil rights leaders speaking at various marches. So, I mean, there really is a very close connection there. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe he did put out some Martin Luther King speeches as well and had a gospel network. And he may or may not have worked with the great uh, C.L. Franklin, who was one of the dominant preachers in Detroit and the father of Aretha Franklin as well. But yeah, that stuff's all tied in. And I kind of jumped Motown ahead of girl groups, which you talk about as well. But girl groups are a new thing in this period. And they're kind of a proto-feminism. Talk a little bit about, you know, the Shirelles and the Chiffons and Luther Dixon and and the production work he was doing there at Scepter Records. And and just tell us about gold groups. What was new and what was so revolutionary about groups like that? Okay, a couple of things. Uh, first off, I think, you know, let's just back it up for a moment here because, I mean, girl groups unto themselves weren't that different. I mean, you could go back and find girl groups earlier on in the 1940s, like the Andrews Sisters, for example. Uh, by the 1950s, what was different is girl groups began performing rock and roll. Black girl groups like the Chantels, for example, uh, the Bobettes were another one, uh, as well as white girl groups like the Ponytails. Uh, those are sort of the uh, antecedents for what comes later. But in 1960, the whole group girl group thing just explodes, becomes extremely popular during that time period. And leading the way in the very beginning are the Shirelles. I mean, the Shirelles, uh, again, starting back in the late 1950s, had a, a hit record called Mama Said. And later on, they're going to do even better because the, what they'll do is they'll wind up performing lots of songs that were written by building writers. Uh, Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Carol King and Jerry Goffin uh, wrote that one. And that song is absolutely phenomenal in terms of what it does, because that song is a perfect blend of an R&B sound coming out of the 1950s with all of these new trappings coming out of the Brill Building, including violins and, uh, and the way the music was structured during those years. And the lyrics, too, Jerry Goffin's lyrics were fascinating uh, because they pick up on one of the things that certainly a lot of teenagers were thinking about uh, in the early 1960s, as well as teenagers of any era, and that is romance and sex and love and sex. And that keeps appearing certainly in a lot of the songs from that time period. But the Shirelles are going to essentially lead the way in the rise of the group phenomenon, they become the first African-American girl group to record a number one record. And that song, Will You Love Me Tomorrow, uh, along with their earlier hit, uh, Tonight's the Night, were far more sexual in terms of the lyrics and the kinds of things that they were talking about. So from that perspective, it really plugs into some of the changing things that are, that are happening during those years, that a lot of these teenagers, uh, going back to the baby boomers hitting high school that same year, that the Shirelles are making it with, well, will you love me tomorrow? I mean, those are the kinds of things, certainly, that are reflecting what's going on for many of those young teenagers during those years. And even the 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 title of uh, of that section what does a what does a girl do uh, a song rather obscure one by the Shirelles, uh gets at this question and it's almost proto feminist in one sense because essentially the question that's being asked in the song is you know boys are always the ones who are leading the way that's the way it was in society during that time period but what does a girl do if a girl wants to ask a boy out or a girl wants to propose or a girl wants to take the lead in any way whatsoever and that's one of the themes running through that chapter in terms of what's going on as far as the changing times 
But girl groups during those years truly are going to give a voice to young women in the early 1960s. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to ask you a little bit about the Dick Clark tours and how it brought these two strains together, the girl groups and uh, and also, you know, Motown and other black pop artists and how they um, defended themselves collectively against the old segregated South. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And so, yeah, I thought I thought your analysis of these two things, Motown and the connection to civil rights and the girl groups and the way it pointed towards it wasn't explicitly feminist, but it it definitely is raising the profile and the presence, not just of singers, but also songwriters like Carole King and, you know, um, Cynthia Weil and Ellie Greenberg. There were lots of women making a big impact in the Brill Building at this point. But these groups, you know, and in Motown are mostly the children of black folks who had migrated up from the South and the same with a lot of the New York groups. And so when these, somebody like Dick Clark would put together a package tour and he might have a couple of these neo doo-wop groups and he might have a couple girl groups. He wouldn't have a Motown act, but, you know, he'd have uh, some, some analogous groups and Motown would have their own package tour. Tell us some of the stories about these integrated groups interacting with a still very ugly segregated South that's just about, you know, segregation is about to be broken by the civil rights movement over these very years we're discussing. Nate, one of the revelations for me doing the research for this book came through Things, all sorts of things that I read, but also from interviews that I did with various people. And one of the things that struck me that I had never really read about was all of these tours that were going on, right. cross-country tours during that time period. And we're not talking, it's, it's not like today where you would have these headliners going out there and they perform and everything else and everything's very well organized and Ticketmaster selling tickets and uh, all sorts of problems stemming from that. What we're talking about coming out of the 1950s and into the early 1960s is in some cases, these were school buses that uh, somebody would rent the bus and they load up the bus and take a group of in various places for one night stands. And they would hit various parts of the United States, including the South. And what was fascinating to me is aboard these buses, and again, there's no major performer, but what we're talking about are, in some cases, 10 to 15 different acts. And each act would get up there, and if they were lucky enough to have a hit record, they'd, they, you know, they'd perform their hit song, or maybe a couple hit songs, and that was it. And they would step down, and then the next person would come out, and that person would do their hits. And it would go on like that for the next hour or hour and a half. So it was sort of a nonstop, uh, if you will, hit after hit being performed by both black artists and white artists. And these artists who, that are riding these buses on these tours, and Dick Clark dubbed his the Dick, Car- Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. They featured all of the big hits in terms of uh, things that he would play on American Bandstand or that you would hear on Top 40 radio starting in the late 1950s and then into the early 1960s. And what would go on is here you have all of these groups and single artists didn't know each other in most cases, uh, may have bumped into each other doing various types of package tours. But here they are aboard these buses on these tour groups. And I, I remember interviewing Bobby V, who had numerous hits, including number one record, Take Good Care of My Baby. And Bobby V made the comment, because uh, V appeared on many of these tours. And at the time, when he started out, he was 18 years old. And 
then throughout the early 1960s, he was still performing on American Bandstand uh, doing these. So still he's in his late teens or, or early 20s. And Bobby V said, here you had the, a group of blacks and whites, males and females. And he said, we had to get along. He said, there's no way you can't get along if you're going out on tour for a month. Whatever the problems are, you work them out. And Bobby V said something I thought that was rather interesting. And he said, I don't remember even one occasion where there was a problem, a race problem on the bus. He said the problems came in when we pulled into certain towns, particularly in the South, because and again, you got to put this into context here. This is the same time where freedom riders heading, uh, you know, from the north, uh, buses of blacks and whites, civil rights workers would travel down south trying to desegregate rest stops along the way. And there would be a hostile reaction to those buses. And in many cases, uh, as these tour buses headed south, they would run into problems. And when I, when I say South, or when Bobby V was talking South, sometimes we're talking, you know, by the time you get to Cincinnati, that's where you began running into these kinds of problems. Uh, so it's not just the deep South, but obviously the farther South you went, the more problems you ran into. But specifically what would happen is, and I can I can remember uh, there, and there are several incidents that I talk about in the book because I kept getting the same story from everybody I was interviewing uh, who, because I always ask them this question about the tour buses and what was it like during an era of civil rights. And they said it was horrible when we wound up going into the Deep South. And the reason it was horrible is because for the first time we were hit in the face with this notion of segregation where whites on the bus would have would be taken to a really good uh, hotel to stay in and blacks had to go to a different area on the other side of town and in many cases staying in somebody's home or on other occasions as these buses would pull into bus stops uh, and to to get gasoline, but also got refreshments and using the restrooms and everything else, they would run into problems with the southern white owners of those restaurants who refused to to serve them. And on more than one occasion, Dick Clark would stand up tall, basically, and say, either you serve all of us or you serve no one. And if the restaurant owner didn't budge, Clark then would basically take everybody on the bus and get them back onto the bus and they'd pull out until they could get someplace that would serve them or they would get takeout in some cases or even cook uh, in terms of their own food. And time after time, some of these people from Bo Diddley uh, uh, to whites uh, who were touring on those buses would talk about how wonderful that Clark was that what Clark did is he treated everybody with respect and he made sure that, you know, he was in charge of these tours and he was emceeing these, these concerts every single night and he made sure no one was disrespected by people. And it, it's sort of an insight into Dick Clark that people lose track of, I think, over the years uh, because Clark's going to have a totally different image later on. But uh, it, truly was an example with these tour buses of they were sort of sort of freedom riders it, in their own it, right a little, little yeah, integrated I mean, it, existence. It, um, it, it, it really is i mean these are civil rights in motion on these buses is what's going on let me jump and in time and, after time and, and cue our next song real quick this is one fine day by the chiffons
that was one of the great girl groups in question, the Chiffons, doing One Fine Day. And the next section, the last thing group that you have in this New Direction section is surf music. Tell us a little bit about Dick Dale and his partnership with Leo Fender and how this collision of technology and a really unique coastal subculture comes together to impact the nation's music. Yeah, it really does. And uh, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview Dick Dale, and it was a phenomenal interview. <laughs> I mean, he he was known for dynamic performances on stage, and that's the way the interview was, too. And he would talk about what he was doing with the music. And one of the things that he stressed, uh, which is contrary to popular belief, uh, according to Dick Dale, he said, look, when I started out, I didn't do reverb. He said, that's not surf music. He said, I was trying to emulate the sound of the wave. And I would do that with my power guitars that he was pioneering for Leo Fender, uh, who's one of the individuals behind the coming of solid state uh, electric guitars. And it really does change uh, things in terms of rock and roll music and everything else. Uh, But anyway, uh, in terms of Dick Dale, Dale, in the beginning, didn't get the credit that he deserved nationwide. Uh, Dick Dale, early on, from 1961 onward, uh, was playing uh, in large theaters, not theaters, but uh, music halls throughout uh, Southern California, sometimes pulling in uh, 4,000 kids, packing into that uh, music hall, basically doing the dance, Surfer's Stomp, and Dick Dale's powerful guitar style certainly powered that forward. Now, that's on the one hand, in terms of one of the strains that you have in surf music early on. The other strain is going to come from the Beach Boys, who really weren't surfers themselves, like Dick Dale was a surfer. But with the exception of Carl Wilson, who did go out and surf. I think it's Dennis. Dennis was the surfer. Dennis, Dennis Wilson, excuse me. Uh, with the exception of Dennis, what you have with the rest of the, the group is they weren't surfers. But Brian knew a good thing when he heard it. And he said, yeah, we'll give it a try. And they come up with various songs, obviously, that are going to establish that that surf music as a genre. And what you have there... And it's phenomenal when you think about it, Nate, because here you have only a very small percentage of of teenagers could surf. Uh, it had to be on the, those Southern California beaches. You're not going to do much surfing in Iowa or on Lake Erie uh, or anywhere else, for that matter, uh, in the United States. But yet that surf craze sweeps across the United States in the early 1960s. And I try to explain that in that chapter in terms of how surf music plugged into the times. It really picks up the optimism of that Kennedy era that you could accomplish anything. Uh, One of the Beach Boys' early hits was a song called Don't Back Down. Uh, And that was the the thrust of it, basically, that even their their first major hit, Surf and Safari, we're going to take on a Surf and Safari, was almost magical in terms of what they're talking about. And it really plugs into the changes that are going on and the optimism of this youth culture during that time period. And one of the interesting things about it, and and I never really thought much about this until I started writing that chapter. And as I was getting, going through that chapter, I realized that unlike all of the other sounds that I discuss in the book, which always have a large number of African-American singers uh, and performers and writers and everything else, surf music was almost 100% white. It totally goes in the opposite direction of the thrust of most early rock and roll. And I found myself asking, you know, why is that in terms of what's going on? And out of that question, comes essentially the way I structured that chapter, trying to deal with surf music that it plugs into the mythic American West, the same type of things that people were talking about, starting with the uh, even, you know, 1849 and the discovery of gold and the gold rush out to California and that you're heading to California. There's that California dream and you're going to find success. All you got to do is substitute 
things like Gold Rush to surfer, and that's where you find success, but it's going to be white males doing it in both cases. And what you're going to find is white males, and again, we're talking the time period here, that essentially males tended to dominate things and were seen as more active doing uh, various types of things from sports and everything else. And all of that comes together with surfing uh, in terms of the image of surf music. And that's kind of an abbreviated version of what I discussed in that chapter. But I think it's very important to try to plug surf music into these deeper strains in terms of American history and culture. Yeah, the the emergence of surf as kind of the first segregated strand of rock and roll, which is not going to be uncommon, unfortunately, The from, say, 65 on, by the time you get to the late 70s, rock is brutally segregated, and you get crowds of white rock fans who are trained to boo black performers. They're not trained to, but, you know, the Rolling Stones would have Stevie Wonder open up for them in 1973, and, and he would get booed off stage. As, you know, Dusty Hill of ZZ Top said, who was on that same tour, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> they booed Stevie Wonder, you know. Yeah. And 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 so this emergence of surf is fascinating. I mean, Dick Dale though is ethnically uh, rich. He's got this Arabic heritage. He brings a lot of these uh, this Middle Eastern music into his music. Let's go ahead and hear Dick Lou's Dick Dale's Miser Lou, which brings these Lebanese elements into surf rock. <laughs> was the great Dick Dale, King of Surf Rock, and his song Major Lou, which a lot of people remember from the movie Pulp Fiction. And yeah, I've also done an episode, an episode that focused pretty heavily on Jan and Dean. And it was interesting, you know, Jan Barry's got very right-wing politics. And yet at the beginning, Jan and Dean were performing with people like Bobby Friedman, who was a black performer out of the Bay Area, and partying together. You know, they it started out as this integrated scene. They would the the white kids, the surfer kids, would go into the interior, and and uh, you know places like Del Monte and hear um, all you know a lot of Hispanic bands and a lot of black bands. But at some oh, point yeah. in the early '60s, the scene segregates, and I think it's a product of suburbs like Hawthorne, where the Beach Boys grew up, being segregated. Black folks were kept in Watts and Compton and not allowed to move closer to the beach. And there you go. Um, you know, we get this, 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 the first white, domin- utterly white dominated genre of rock and roll and surf music. But let's, let's talk about um, this old styles. You, you, you give a full section to the book of what you call old styles. And I want to talk about your schematics first, and then we'll talk about the big picture. We only have time to kind of talk about the big picture impressions. But I thought your, the way you divided up the scene was very useful and very comprehensive. You've got a category you call R&B rock. And this is groups like the Impressions, the Isley Brothers, also Gary U.S. Bonds, who's a totally great one-off, uh, unique character coming out of Virginia in this time, doing some really interesting sonic innovations, like recording a new song that's him singing over a single instrumental that's already been recorded, like way you know presaging hip hop. And then you've got this uh, country category, and you put Elvis Presley in this category, but also Brenda Lee and the Everly Brothers. There's this, uh, you know, Roy Orbison's in this same mix. Had Buddy Holly lived, he would have been in there. There was this strong strain of Southern rockers in the 50s who kind of evolve into this, I don't want to say tamer, but yeah, I'll say tamer. <laughs> a little bit tamer <laughs> okay. style. Elvis, Elvis was 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 tamed. He was broken by the army, and a new Elvis emerges. That's what Tom Parker wanted to sell the American people. He's bringing in his operatic influences and and expressing himself and working with great thrill building songwriters like Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann, and you know doing some great stuff, but also doing you know, new versions of Oso Le Mio, uh, you know, a, a very unusual stuff. Then you have a category called pop rockers and you put people like Dion and Ricky Nelson and Connie Francis in there. 
and also Pat Boone. You give a little bit of rehab to Pat Boone. And I might, if, if you want to, you can talk about that when I finish the whole run. I thought that was interesting. You don't often see defenses of Pat Boone. Then you have the second wave of pop rockers, and you include, you know, Bobby V, Gene Pitney, Del Shannon, the Four Seasons, the the whole um, Fabian and and um, Frankie Avalon group out of Philly would be in that category as well. And then you talk about the radio, but also include kind of a miscellaneous section. So you have non-surfer instrumental groups like Dwayne Eddy or the Ventures. You have um, folk pop, which is immense from this whole period from the time. The Kingston Trio does Tom Dooley in 1959, and it's a massive number one hit. And then you have Marty Robbins with El Paso, similar ways. So you have this college kids are really going for, think, groups like the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul and Mary, Chad Mitchell, so many others, very kind of cleaned up the children of the weavers. Like there was a distinction I think Woody Guthrie had between folk singers like himself and Lead Belly and singers who performed folk songs, people like Pete Seeger and the rest of the weavers that weren't quote unquote folk, <laughs> but did sing folk songs. And and so a lot of these groups like Kingston Trio, I think would have fallen on the other side of that line. He famously yeah. said Bob Dylan, of course, was a folk singer, which is interesting. Um, but anyway, what's your big picture takeaway of these other trends that were not the cutting edge of the, you know, the four um, categories that we talked about in the first section, but just give us the big picture takeaway on this this whole section of the book. All right, that that section of the book, I, I let it's me a big let question me put, is let, let me put it this way. It really is because that I I struggled with that uh, at the very beginning in terms of structurally, and what I realized is as I was thinking about this, and and here's where my own past in terms of a rock and roll fan and is in high school in the early 1960s comes into play here. Uh, and paired with being an historian trying to put some kind of, uh, of over, overview on this. What I realized is one of the big differences between today, let's say in the music scene as compared to back then. And I cannot exaggerate this is back then the power of top 40 radio and with top 40 radio, I'm also including Dick Clark and American bandstand, which is kind of leading the way there in terms of what's going on. But what you have as a result of that, unlike today, what you have with top 40 radio is no matter where teenagers lived in the United States, whether they lived in a small town in New Mexico or whether they lived in New York City or Tallahassee or Sheboygan or wherever, they were listening to the same songs, the same hits. And Top 40 Radio, uh, dating back to its rise in the 1950s uh, and in the early 1960s, it's going great guns. What's, what happens there is Top 40 Radio included all sorts of stuff and it wasn't just rock and roll although that was the dominant uh, style because teenagers were the ones listening to it but also if you sat down and listened to top 40 radio for an hour you would hear everything from traditional rock and roll uh to you know all the latest hits in terms of surf music or Dwayne eddie's latest instrumental or the very next song after you might hear a, a, a song by, uh, uh, let's say, Wanda Jackson screaming out, let's have a party. Uh, the very next song could be something like Burt Kampfert's instrumental, pop instrumental, Wonderland by Night. And kids listening to the radio back then didn't distinguish the way critics might today didn't distinguish necessarily among these different sounds. If you heard it on top 40 radio in a most broadest sense, it's part of the rock and roll landscape. Same thing with folk music. When Peter, Paul and Mary arrive on the scene, 
I mean, it's going to cause a, a, a folk music revival in the United States. But for many white teenage girls uh, uh, across the United States, taking a look at Mary Travers with her beautiful, long, straight blonde hair, they would try to emulate that. In fact, I remember when I was interviewing Mary Travers, uh, Mary Travers, I, I asked her about that. I said, well, what, what's, it, what's it like when you read that girls were actually trying to iron their hair so it would be straight like yours? And she just kind of laughed and she said, you know, it's crazy. What can I tell you in terms of that? She said, I, I try not to let those things get to me. Uh, so there are so many other big problems in the world in terms of what's going on. But it does show the power of Top 40 Radio. And one of the reasons that I used for that chapter title is it's wild weekend. It's an instrumental that becomes a major hit uh, in the early 1960s by a group called the rebels, not Dwayne Eddy's group, but this was a, a local garage band in Buffalo, New York. And that song originated as the theme song for the, a disc jockey on WKBW radio in Buffalo, Tom Shannon. It was the Tom Shannon show, top tunes, news and weather, get, we'll all get together on Tommy Shannon show, KB radio. And that, when I hit on that, the whole chapter came together in terms of how do you work in all of these disparate sounds during this time period? And the answer was top 40 radio. And I can't overemphasize that because to this day, I don't care where you go in the United States, uh, and, and nowadays beyond the United States borders, people of a certain age group are going to know these songs because they would have heard them repeatedly uh, when they were growing up. One of the things I do sometimes, Nate, when I go out and, and give a talk is I'll start up my talk and I'll say, look, Here's what I want to do. This is what I'll tell the audience. I said, let me play a snippet of a song. And what I want you to do is tell me who sang the song, what the title of the song is, and if you can, what year. And uh, and usually, I remember once I started out, the first song I played was a snippet from Hound Dog. And the, the audience went crazy because, you know, everybody, unless you grew up on Pluto, you would know Hound Dog, uh, particularly for the, the people attending the, uh, this kind of a, of a talk. And as we would move on, I would make the songs more and more obscure. And never even once did I stop stump an audience no matter how the obscure the song was not only could they tell you you know it, it, once i remember throwing out the song baby blue that was done by the echoes in 1961 it's one of these new doo-wop hits and uh with that particular song i said okay because they, they got the echoes i said okay then what year was it and they said 1961. I said, okay, now let's let's see if you really know what you're talking about. What label it was on, and what was the color of the label? <laughs> and sure enough, there were several people in the audience who yelled out the right uh, label and the color of the label, and that really tells you something about the cultural importance of that music. Here we are, 50 or 60 years later. And these aging baby boomers who listen to these songs on Top 40 Radio know those songs. It's become part of the American uh, songbook, really, in terms of that. Absolutely. It really sa it, it says the power of rock and roll as a cultural phenomenon. Yes, and, and, and so many of the songs from this era through their use in movies and TV shows have gone on to become familiar to subsequent generations as well. So I think you've definitely demolished the idea that it was a dark age, that this this was popular music, this was innovative music, this was music that communicated to its audience, and its audience was going through big changes, and this music documented it. Um, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. My guest has been Richard Aquila. The book is Rock and Roll in Kennedy's America, A Cultural History of the Earth early 1960s. And Richard, thanks so much. I love the book. We didn't get to talk about rock and roll on the new frontier, but you've got some great analysis there about how Kennedy's vision of the future tied in with rock and roll. And tragically, you know, Kennedy didn't have a future and the rest of the country went in a very different direction after his death. But this is a 
unique little period from 1960 to 1963, before the death of John F. Kennedy, before the arrival of the Beatles, rock and roll had uh, a renaissance. Richard, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Dave. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate and Ed Legg kick off a new Let It Roll miniseries looking at the 1980s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.